0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie and this is episode 413, The D. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Casey, Jonathan, and Catherine for signing up already. It was fall of 1069, and the Danes were coming. William had tried to head this off by sending an English bishop, Athelsiga, to plead his case and dissuade King Swain of Denmark from trying to invade. But clearly, the bishop hadn't been that persuasive. Swain had launched no less than 240 ships, each one loaded down with warriors. And the fleet itself was led by Swain's brother, Osbjorn, as well as two of Swain's sons, Harold and Knut. Now truth be told, it would be hard to assemble a fleet without including some of Swain's sons. This guy was prolific, and in order to count Swain's kids, you have to use all your fingers and toes. And that only accounts for the ones that they bothered to write down. And given how many concubines Swain had, I suspect that there were at least a couple kids out there who didn't make it into the record. But putting any of your sons on an invasion fleet was still a pretty big personal risk. And so Swain appears to have been serious about his prospects of taking England. Which raises the question, why? Why was he so serious about this? And to be honest, no one's entirely sure. But there is a passage in Orderic which might give us a hint. That passage says that King Swain of Denmark was, quote, moved by the loss of his countrymen, recently slain in the battle with Harold, end quote. And if you read pop history, you will probably see this quote presented in exactly this form. And sometimes this little statement even appears in scholarly articles and books by very respected historians. But what you might have noticed is that it isn't a complete sentence. It's just a partial quote. And what's interesting is that oftentimes, once that sentence fragment is introduced, the author's focus changes dramatically. Suddenly, authors turn and begin to try and investigate just how many Danes might have died at Hastings in order to inspire the King of Denmark to invade England as an act of vengeance and I can see why this thinking is popular. The story of a king settling a debt of honor over the loss of his fallen soldiers, all through the power of shield and axe? Well, that sounds awesome. It's like a buddy cop movie combined with Lord of the Rings. So hell yeah. And because this sounds so completely kick ass, it would be very easy for me to start this episode with a dramatization of Swain's grief and rage and then move right on to a thrilling story of righteous vengeance. But I'm not starting the episode that way. And it's not because I hate fun. It's because actually, this is an excellent example of how historic myths not only get created, but accidentally become part of the official record. It's a story of how quotes from actual documents can be presented in a misleading way to fit a narrative. In this case, a fun narrative, But ultimately, still a misleading one. So let's talk about why this understandably popular tale about a vengeful invasion is factually misleading. And we'll start with whether the Danes were actually there at Hastings. Because that seems like a pretty important element, right? Well, interestingly, we only have one source that suggests the Danes were present at the Battle of Hastings. Just one. And it's Poitiers. And Poitiers has been an important and reasonably reliable source for a lot of what's been going on with William and the Normans throughout much of the early conquest era. But Poitiers was not at the Battle of Hastings. Instead, his information came from people who were close to William's orbit, or perhaps even from William himself. But none of these people were English, which means that in the best case scenario, Poitiers was getting his information from people who were a whole battlefield away from the English lines. So while he is a contemporary source, he's not exactly the best source for getting us an accurate picture of the national composition of the English army. And one thing in particular would have made things very confusing for continental observers of this event. And that thing are the Huscarls. You see, at this point, at the Battle of Hastings, the English army had a large number of the infamously terrifying English huscarls, who were wielding their gigantic axes. And while the Huskarls were English, their origin was linked to Scandinavia, with their position and style of combat being adopted about a half century earlier during the reign of Canute. And if you saw an English Huskarl across the field of battle, chances are the first thing you would notice would be their massive axes, which were also culturally associated with Scandinavia. So associated, in fact, that they were called Dane axes. So if you were a Norman whose entire culture informed you that the English were weak, embarrassing farmers, and then you saw across the battlefield some huge, heavily armed dudes lopping the heads off of war horses with their gigantic Dane axes... Well, you might come to the conclusion that those English people were actually Danes. But they weren't. They were Huskarls. And considering that Poitiers is our only source for Danes fighting at Hastings, and considering how Hastings played out, specifically how quickly and frantically Harold was forced to gather and move his army, I suspect that Poitiers' record of Danes was a simple misunderstanding. And it was only the English who were fighting for England that day. But even if we assume the Danes were at Hastings, and even if we assume they were in large enough numbers to catch the attention of the Normans, who then told Poitiers, and even if we assume those Danes were of high enough rank to inspire the king of Denmark to seek revenge, even then, we're left with a difficult question. Why would King Swain wait three years to launch a payback campaign? That doesn't make any sense. And I've watched actual real life historians who were taken in by this gripping tale of revenge struggle with explaining the delay on their heroic quest for retribution. And that's silly because actually there's a rather obvious explanation for the delay. And I think it's also probably the correct explanation as well. King Swain didn't launch this invasion because he wanted revenge for Hastings. He did it because he wanted cold, hard cash, which in the 11th century meant he wanted land and the titles to hold it. And the reason why I'm so confident in this is because Orderic himself, the sole source for the comment about vengeance, tells us directly that Swain's motivation for invading England was about ambition and the desire for wealth. The only way to get a revenge story out of Orderic's account is to take his paragraph on Swain's reasoning and cut it down to a single sentence fragment. Here's what Orderick actually says. King Swain of Denmark, quote, had often been invited by the earnest prayers of the English accompanied by large sums of money. And he was also moved by the loss of his countrymen, recently slain in the battle with Harold. And being the nephew of King Edward, who was son of Hardiknut, his ambition was excited by his near relationship to the throne, end quote. The context changes things a bit, I think. I mean, Orderic mentions the Danish deaths at Hastings as a motivator, but a minor one, And remember, Orderick was drawing upon Poitiers when he wrote his history. So it's easy to see how that error about the Danes being present would have squeaked into his account. But even then, you can see that Orderick didn't see it as supremely important. He just sort of tacks it on to the explanation, basically saying, oh yeah, and there was also that thing at Hastings. But just in case the reader missed the implication with the wording, Wardrick sandwiched this in between two other much larger motivations because he opens up by telling us that the English were coming over and begging him to intervene while also providing him with huge sums of money to sway his thinking on the matter. And bribery can be very motivating to a certain kind of person. And that certain kind of person usually holds some kind of governmental title. And then Orderick closes by saying that Swain had roots in England, and he had a dynastic claim on the throne through Edward and Canute, and that his ambitions were excited by this. Orderick wasn't being subtle. He just comes out and says that Swain's ambitions were excited by his dynastic claim to England. In fact, Orderick goes on to say, quote, Grown arrogant by repeated successes and seeking to raise his power and glory to a still higher pitch, Swain, as we already mentioned, fitted out an expedition against King William, end quote. Pretty clear, right? In fact, when he speaks about Swain's motivations, he's so clear about what's driving the king that it makes me wonder if these authors had actually read Orderic because he's practically screaming from the rafters that this was about power and wealth. I mean, maybe honor and vengeance were a perk, but that's at best. And for what it's worth, Orderick wasn't alone on this. Adam of Bremen joins in and makes the additional claim that Edward had promised Swain the throne of England. And for all we know, he might have. Pretty much everyone has a story of Unsteady Eddie promising them England. And while I am inclined to think that most people were lying, it's possible that he might've been doing that thing that insecure people often do when they talk to people. He might've just been telling everybody exactly what they wanted to hear. And so at the end of the day, Swain, King of Denmark, was not John Wick. And he wasn't particularly concerned with a blood debt. This is simply the same story as most other invasion stories an already wealthy and powerful man was seeking yet more wealth and power. This is all about lands and titles, which isn't as much fun because land disputes aren't sexy. Sorry, real estate lawyers, but they aren't. And so I'm not surprised that so much ink has been spilled about the middle bit of this statement. That's much more fun and it feels cinematic, but here in the real world, Lands and titles are much more common motivators. And those are the motivators that were specifically mentioned by Orderick. So if you want my best guess as to what this was, I suspect that Swain decided it was in his best interest to get his hands on some choice property. And maybe he came to this decision through medieval lobbyists, maybe due to one of the worst kings in English history making more promises than he could keep. Maybe it was because being a cousin of Edward, he had a more valid claim on the throne than an illegitimate Norman duke. Whatever it was, I really doubt it was about honor or vengeance. And here's another reason why I doubt that. Ordering adds that it wasn't just Danes who were participating in this campaign. He says that Swain's army was multinational, with Poland, Frisia, Saxony, and Lithuania taking part as well, as they were all allied with Denmark. Though it seems that the alliances only went so far because we're also told that at least a part of those auxiliary troops were hired with English wealth, meaning some of the money that the English have been sending over to encourage a Danish intervention. And so they are taking part, not for honor, but because, and I can't say this enough, the motivator for this whole thing, right from the very beginning, was all about wealth. And speaking of wealth, this army was joined by some of the richest men in the West. That's right. Swain had a pair of bishops that joined this campaign. And I'm not sure if they were paid or if they were taking part in this gratis. But whatever their salary was, I'm guessing that they were planning to impart the blessings of Christ upon the Normans, rather roughly, with clubs. And lucky for them, they didn't have to wait too long. Ships move quickly after all, and in late summer or early autumn, the Danish fleet of 240 ships appeared off the coast of Dover and headed straight for the harbor town. Yep, poor Dover was getting attacked again. I don't know what you did, Dover, but we're seeing generations of people going out of their way to give you the business. But experience is the best teacher. And as you might recall, Dover also had a castle. Now, granted, the Normans set it on fire back in 1066, but since then, the good townsfolk had rebuilt it and the Normans had remanded. Furthermore, as we've been speaking about in previous episodes, despite all the uprisings, William had been keeping his troops back for fear of what Swain and the Danes might do, much like Harold had done for fear of William. So when the Danes came knocking on the doors of Dover, Orderick tells us the town was successfully defended by the king's troops, meaning the Norman garrison at Dover Castle. But when it comes to a good old-fashioned invasion, the Danes weren't going to be that easily discouraged. So they simply moved the fleet a little bit up the coastline to sandwich, and they struck again. However, Orderick tells us that the fleet was, again, repulsed by the Normans, But the Danes didn't get all dressed up just to sit on their boats and stay sober. They were here to party, and there's more than one pub on this route. So they moved further up the coastline to the ancient market town of Ipswich. And there was a lot of money that passed through that coastal town. And this time, the Danes disembarked and did a little pillaging, at least for a while. Because Orderick tells us that the townsfolk weren't ready to give up just yet, Instead, the locals organized a defense, likely the Ferd, and they managed to kill some 30 raiders before driving the rest back to their ships in fear for their lives. Orderick literally writes that after 30 were killed, the assembled townsfolk, quote, compelled the rest to save themselves by flight, end quote. And I don't have to pretend to be surprised by that statement. I'm honestly surprised because we're talking about a fleet of 240 ships from Denmark, Poland, Lithuania, Frisia, and Saxony. These were people who would have been quite experienced with raiding, and there were a lot of them. So either Ipswich was full of some genuinely terrifying people, where the local festivals resembled training exercises for spec ops, or something's not right here. But the tale continues. Orderick next tells us that after being driven off, the Danes moved further up the coastline to Norwich, where they landed once again. And this time, they met the resistance of a Norman by the name of Ralph de Gauder. And according to Orderick, he, quote, put numbers of them to the sword, caused many to be drowned, and forced the rest to retire with disgrace to their ships and put to sea, end quote. And at this point, I've got to stop because either we're missing part of the story or someone is terribly misinformed because come on, 240 ships brimming with soldiers drawn from experienced raiding kingdoms were getting slapped around by every local levy that they encountered. They were so panicky that they apparently drowned in large numbers because of how scary Sir Ralph was. So what the hell is going on here? Well, one thing to take into account is that Orderick makes it quite clear that he was no fan of Swain or the Danes. He pretty much talks trash about them in his account anytime he has the chance. But even then, I feel like he's laying it on a bit thick here. Either that, or the people who reported the events to him were inflating things a bit too much. I mean, it is possible that the Danes expected to be greeted by a friendly audience, and they were shocked when they kept encountering resistance. And it does appear that the Normans, through their English collaborators, had managed to clamp down on the lands south of the Thames to a ridiculous degree. Additionally, while the Danes were culturally familiar and relatively popular in the north, that wasn't the case in the south. So encountering opposition at southern landing sites would have been highly likely. And so in the face of resistance like that, I suppose it is possible that a fleet would realize that they should find a landing site further north, somewhere outside of William's sphere of influence. But if that's the case, it would mean that Swain and the Danish fleet were unaware of the cultural situation in England, and that when the Northumbrians reached out for support, they didn't know the difference between Northumbria and Wessex. But we know that the Danes were familiar with England. Many of you might remember that Swain was actually born there. And trying to land in the south would also mean that the fleet was intentionally trying to land right in the middle of the region where William had the most military support. It was a move that William had done in 1066, but it had nearly ended in total disaster for him and that was when he had a fleet that was four times larger than the Danish fleet. So the Danes, with only a quarter of the ships, were in a much more precarious position than William was. So if this was the plan, then the fleet was just incredibly foolish. And I'm not entirely convinced that this was just a poorly planned and even worse executed attempt at landing the entire fleet in William's backyard. Instead, I suspect that Orderick and his sources were misinterpreting what the fleet was up to because it does appear that the Danish fleet struck those four towns. And those targets actually make a lot of sense. Looking at them, we can safely assume that the fleet sailed south from Denmark, followed the coastline along the continent as they went south, and then once they reached the point where the channel was narrowest, they crossed and began raiding their way up the eastern coastline of England. What they were up to seems pretty self-explanatory, And I've actually read historians simply state that they were using the old Viking route, which in many ways, they were. But the target list stands out. And I think it's telling us something that might account for the strangeness of having a massive fleet hit these four towns, but only do it as a quick strike before moving on. Half of these towns were sink ports, which... You'll remember, were the English harbor towns that King Edward gave tax breaks in exchange for the promise that they would provide the kingdom with their ships for a period of military service every year. They were the privatized English navy. So, what if the Danes weren't truly trying to make landfall? What if they were intending to join their comrades in Northumbria, but as they were making their way north, they were using their knowledge of the English military structure to absolutely demolish the English naval capacity along the way. What if the plan was just to stay in these towns long enough to wreck the ships and maybe grab a silver goblet or two, and then move on before the Normans could prepare the next harbor for a similar attack? By striking so many harbors on the way to Northumbria, and presumably causing damage to their ships and also just the harbor in general, William would find it very difficult to quickly relocate large numbers of troops north because the sea is the fastest way to move that many troops. But if the Danes successfully went and wrecked these harbors, then instead, William would be stuck with land transportation. Slow, tiring land. All while the Danes would be able to have relatively unfettered access to the sea. At least to me, That makes a lot more sense for why this massive invasion fleet didn't put up much of a fight and why they struck the towns that they did. It might also explain why we don't have any records of William using sea power in response to the Danish threat. He and his bros were out there just hoofing it, and this could explain why. But speaking of William, what was he up to while the English fleet were raiding their way up the eastern coast of England? Well... According to Orderic, he was hunting in the Forest of Dean, which, according to our scribe, he did a lot. And it's a decision that is both unsurprising and also shocking. I mean, he was a noble, and nobles generally like to unwind by terrorizing woodland creatures. But at the same time, England was racked with regular uprisings, and Maine was in a full-blown rebellion at this point, so it was now really the best time for a little R&R? And William was also facing crises from within. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that he was forced to allow large numbers of his Norman knights and assorted mercenaries to return home. And these weren't just random fighters. I mean, obviously some were. But there were also some major names that were leaving. Some of his close companions had ditched the effort to take England. Amory of Tours, the guy who convinced William to undergo a coronation and who Poitiers specifically singled out for praise, well, yeah, he was out of here. Joffrey of Chamont-sur-Loire, one of William's companions, was also gone. When you look at the records, there were major names leaving at this point, and for good reason. People were dying. And I'm not talking about acceptable losses, you know, like the English or the commoners of Normandy. I mean, dying was kind of what they were there for. But no, there were continental nobles dying in this campaign, which wasn't supposed to happen. But those assassins in the woods, as well as Hareward and others, had been stacking bodies. And it seems that changed the calculus for these continental nobles. Because England no longer looked like an undefended piggy bank. It looked more like a suicide pact. And so, obviously, some of them decided to call it a day and head home. And you might recall that it was so bad that in an effort to keep his army from evaporating, William tried to appeal to their sense of honor, which did not work. So he then tried to bribe them with additional pay, which largely didn't work, but some accepted. And so then he moved on to extortion, saying that their lands would be confiscated if they left and even that wasn't enough to keep a bunch of his army from returning to the continent. Now, Orderic, of course, blames this flight on horny Norman wives, which is hilarious and I really want it to be true, but chances are a lot of the people leaving England were doing it because they valued their lives more than William's promise of treasure, which meant that William was becoming short on manpower And due to his bribes, he was also burning through his war chest just to keep what remained of his army on staff. And perhaps it was that fact that led him at about the same time to begin issuing a second minting of coins. Though notably, the quality of this second minting was much poorer than the first, which might suggest that the royal coffers were running thin and they were trying to stretch them out a bit. It could also be an indication that the moneyers, who were English, were just absolutely over this guy, and they weren't feeling honor-bound to play by the rules anymore. And so instead, they decided to cash in just like their new Norman masters did. Either way, though, things had clearly gotten dicey, and that made it a really weird time to go on holiday. Now, I have read one historian argue that perhaps William was seeking to impose his authority on the Welsh border and that the hunting was just incidental. But this line of reasoning requires a few big leaps to get to its conclusion. Not the least of which being that no one said that he was there to clamp down on uprisings or Welsh raids. The contemporary reports say that William was there hunting in the forest of Dean, which is very different from clamping down on a border. And making that conclusion even less likely we have his previous actions from that same year, because so far he'd been leaving the suppression of the West in the hands of his commanders, like Brian of Brittany, and there are no documents that say that he decided at this point to take a hands-on approach. So I'm inclined to think that William was indeed hunting, especially since this portion of Orderick was drawn from the lost section of Poitiers, who would have been well informed about William's movements at this point. But by choosing to hunt so close to the Welsh border, well, that meant he would be far from the raids by the Danish fleet, which in turn means it would have taken time for the king to be notified that England was under attack. All in all, this hunting trip was great news for the Danes, but pretty bad news for William and even worse news for Bambi. But at some point, messengers reached William And Orderick says that he immediately sent a messenger to York, carrying instructions that the garrisons stationed in the two recently constructed castles were to be, quote, on their guard against the enemy and to summon him to their support if necessity required, end quote. You see, even William knew where the Danish fleet were headed. I really doubt that they were trying to land in the south. Furthermore, it looks like all that raiding along the coastline must have taken a while because Orderic says that the men manning the castles at York actually had enough time to send a reply, and they told William that they wouldn't need his support, which to me is about the most unsurprising reply in the history of replies. Even in our modern times, people tend to hesitate to ask the boss for help, and we are a long way away from the honor-based chivalric culture of the 11th century. Furthermore, most of us don't have bosses who have a history of killing dudes and a bunch of rumors about people getting poisoned and at least one story about how his squad broke the rules of war, attacked the King of England and cut his off. So yeah, these guys had a scary boss. So if I was them, I probably also would have replied that everything was totally fine in York. It's fine, don't come up here. We're good, I promise. It's an entirely understandable response. And it's also a catastrophic mistake, because it turned out that just down the way were Edgar the Atheling, Earl Waltheoth, Seward, and a whole variety of other powerful English nobles. And do you remember how the Northumbrian rebels had assembled a fleet for an unknown purpose? And then when William and his army arrived at York unexpectedly, the leadership boarded their ships and legged it. Well, they were back. The nobles and their ships which is yet another reason why i don't buy the idea that the danes were trying and failing to land in the south it seems quite clear to me that the plan all along was to sail north and meet up with their allies in northumbria especially considering that the northumbrian rebels who had been sending bribes to denmark to encourage this intervention had just happened to launch a complementary fleet at the very same time And according to John of Worcester, at some point in late summer prior to September 8th, the two fleets met. Well, most of the two fleets met. Orderick mentions that Edgar the Atheling had decided to go south of the Humber in the interim along with a ship or two of his men because he wanted to conduct a raid. And the Atheling's raid had gone just about as well as you would expect it would with this guy. You see, it turned out that William had been doing his best to garrison the bejesus out of England. And even though knights were leaving, he still had enough remaining as well as enough collaborators to heavily militarize major English towns in his control. And Lincoln was no exception. So, as Edgar and his men were raiding, the Norman garrisons in Lincolnshire sallied forth. And they rode down the English forces under Edgar's control. The ensuing conflict was an absolute disaster, with virtually all of Edgar's forces getting captured, with only the Atheling and two of his companions escaping. So thanks to that little debacle, the English side was down a few ships, and probably also a bit of morale as well. I mean, this guy was supposed to be the next king, and yet here he was, showing as much skill as his great-grandfather, King Athelred Unred. And given all this, I can totally understand why some people were reaching out to Swain as the better option. But regardless, the Danes, along with auxiliaries from Poland, Frisia, Lithuania, and Saxony, were now joined by the Northumbrian rebel army and a whole variety of English nobles beyond Edgar, including Gospatric, Merla Swain, Seward, Ilnoch, Archil, the four sons of Carly, and many others. So this thing was growing rapidly, and now that it was in the mouth of the Humber, it was impossible to miss. And upon realizing what was bearing down upon them, the Normans who were garrisoning those two castles in York went absolutely apeshit. Worcester tells us that the Norman garrisons were so freaked out that they convinced themselves that the rebel army might be able to cross their moats by using debris from nearby houses. And if that happened, they might gain entry. So how do you prevent an army from filling a moat with debris? Well, you might have some ideas. And the Normans, who had only recently set fire to London because they panicked over a Christmas cheer, had an idea as well. They set the houses on fire and they were doing this in an old English town where most everything was largely made out of wood and you'll never guess what happened next. The fire spread out of control, Normans. Now, Worcester claims the whole city was damaged in the subsequent fire, including the monastery of St. Peter, thus finishing the job that the Normans had started earlier that year with the desecration of the associated church. The chronicle in their account is much less charitable than Worcester. The scribes in that account say that the Norman garrisons had intentionally burned the city and the Minster. Though they only did that after plundering it, of course. Which, if I'm being honest, sounds about right. I mean, these are the same garrisons who were acting so brutally that kindly old Archbishop Eldred took the time to ride down to London just to curse William and call him, well, a bunch of naughty words. Also remember that when William was anticipating a siege by Harold in 1066, he pillaged, raided, and wasted the lands around Hastings. So it's entirely plausible that his men would do exactly the same thing when facing a potential siege in York. Burning towns and cities is kind of just what the Normans did. You can ask Dover or any number of other southern towns. So the Normans were running around with matches and burning down York. Maybe intentionally, maybe through negligence, probably intentionally. And then Worcester adds that Eldred, the Archbishop of York, noticed the Danish fleet and the local support that they were given. And this fact distressed him so much that he dropped dead on September 11th. Which must have been a huge moment for a lot of people because I still hear people talking about September 11th. Now, Eldred had tried to play peacemaker earlier in the conquest, and as a consequence, he tends to be interpreted as pro-Norman. And as such, his sudden death is often interpreted as a reaction to the threat to Norman power. But here's the thing. Even if he was pro-Norman, all the evidence of that is before William desecrated the York Minster and his army massacred the people of York and the Norman sheriff and his men looted the archbishop's stuff. It was also before the Normans began to move as quickly as they could to replace the English clergy with Norman clergy, and began to even seek to demote the archbishopric of York. Recent Norman activity seems to have really soured old Eldred, and made him pretty salty. And even that was before a bunch of horse bros set the city on fire, looted his monastery, and then burned the monastery down for good measure. So... I'm skeptical that Eldred was so pro-Norman that he dropped dead at the side of a rebel force. If anything had placed a strain on his heart, I'm guessing it was the Normans. And even Worcester, who tries to give the Normans a little cover by saying that the fires were mostly an accident, was really upset with what happened to the Minster. Because he goes on to say that shortly after the Minster was burned, and before the whole city was consumed by the fires set by the Normans, there was, quote, an infliction of the divine vengeance, end quote, in the form of the Danes arriving in York. So yeah, according to Worcester, after literally centuries of Big J sending armies to kick the hell out of the English because of one slide or another, finally, the big guy was coming down on the side of the English, or at least on the side of that minster. It's going down for real. It was indeed going down for real. Our sources, which were penned during times of Norman control, get pretty tight-lipped about what followed. And they often do that when Normandy is about to look bad. And they're about to look real bad here. And it's Orderic who provides our most detailed explanation of what happened next. With so many locals arriving to join the army, the English put their army into the vanguard, assembling their forces in front of their Scandinavian allies. With Waltheof, Gospatrick, Merleyswain, Elknott, Arkel, and the four sons of Carly commanding. Edgar, notably, isn't mentioned in the command list, probably for the best. Now, this combined force of English and Danes entered York, and there is no mention of a fight at the walls. So it's likely that the Normans concentrated their defenders in their Mottenbailey castles and abandoned the walls of the city right from the start which honestly were probably pretty damaged from all those fires. Once the English and Danish army were inside the city, the Normans sallied forth out of their castles and attacked them in the streets. And by now you know how Motten and Bailey castles are notoriously difficult to bring down, provided that they're well manned with defenders. And yet for some reason, these knights decided to opt for a street fight against a force that vastly outnumbered them. It was a rash and stupid move. And as you might imagine, it went badly. All those that left the castles to fight were either killed or captured. And the castles, now sapped of most of their defenders, didn't stand a chance. They were overrun in less than a day. Worcester claims that over 3,000 Normans were killed in the fighting. But the Chronicle doesn't go that far instead claiming that many hundreds were killed. However many there were, though, it's agreed that the Normans who had been occupying and looting York were slaughtered in the fighting. And only William Mallet, his wife and kids, and a few others were spared, and they were kept as prisoners. And taking history into account, I have to assume that it was the Danes who lobbied to hold Mallet as a prisoner. Because I'm guessing that the locals really wanted to celebrate with a traditional northern barbecue. But with the city won, well, with whatever was left of the city won, the army then went about demolishing the castles. And as they did so, they discovered, quote, innumerable treasures, end quote. Because of course they did. The Normans had been looting and pillaging Yorkshire, including even York Minster. So they would need to keep all that plunder somewhere. And castles were the most logical place, which meant now they are in the hands of the Danes and the rebels. All in all, it was a profitable day, which paradoxically was probably a bit worrying for the English, because while the English were here to liberate their kingdom from the Normans, the Danes were here to, um, well, no one was quite sure why the Danes were here. But if it was for the cash, well, they might just decide to take this payout and call it a day. About a week later, on September 19th, the people of York buried Archbishop Eldred in what remained of the Church of St. Peter, which, considering what Orderick and Worcester have said, I'm guessing was probably just a few charred struts and maybe a smoldering joist or two. Edred had spent the last years of his life attempting to broker a peaceful resolution with William. And in the end they rewarded him for his service by destroying his spiritual home and ensuring that he had to be laid to rest in ruins. Meanwhile, in the Forest of Dean, as Bambi was ducking and weaving as best as he could, a messenger arrived. It turns out that when the garrisons at York said they could hold out for a year, they were lying. The city, and pretty much all the soldiers stationed there, were lost even worse the messenger informed william that an enormous international army had assembled and it was preparing to fight him directly and william wasn't the only person who was hearing about this this was enormous news so you can bet that the rest of england were also hearing about what happened in york and as the king was near the welsh border receiving these reports I wonder if he noticed that the friendly smiles of the English were suddenly starting to look a little wolfish. Almost as if the people of Devon, Somerset, and Dorset were ready to do a little hunting themselves. Oh shit! Oh shit! Oh shit! Oh shit! Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach oh, me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. Oh shit! Thanks for listening.